Welcome to the Working in Wigan podcast. I'm Vicky Galligan and I run Belting Marketing Wigan. Hello, my name is Val Hogan and I'm the founder of Verve Recruitment CIC. Today, I'm talking to Val about how she set up her foster care recruitment business. And we'll hear a little bit about her background as well and some of the issues that foster care recruitment is facing at the moment. I'd like to start by asking you, Val, how you came to work in foster care recruitment um, because you had quite a corporate background, really, didn't you? Yeah. So how did you make that transition and why? When I left school in 1979, we were open to so many opportunities. Uh, Even though times were very different for a young person that was coming out of school, particularly if you hadn't really got many qualifications, there were jobs everywhere. Yeah. You were able to just basically pick and choose where you wanted to go. So... If you'd come from a community that was, I was brought up in a council estate, we all were brought up in exactly the same way. All of a sudden, you've gone into an environment, into a world where you could actually be yourself. So you could follow your own nose. And for me, that was amazing because for the first time ever, all of these opportunities, which by today's standards will be quite minimal. I mean, you could go work in the mill which I did, I went minding cotton. Um, You could go work in in an office where you could learn your skills, which was great. You could work in the the poll tax office, which I did for not very long, um, because I had no friends left. Um, (laughs) You know, you could actually just follow your own path. So for somebody like myself, who was a punk as well, and I'd found myself through music and, and the individuality that was around at the time. If you wanted to be a little bit different or you, if you had a questionable personality, which is what I have, and I want to know why, why can't we do things? Um, and particularly for our children, because I was very involved with bringing up my youngest brother because mm. I was 11 when he was born. Yeah. And I kind of switched on to life a little bit at that point and I could see that if I allowed him to follow down a path that I knew wasn't the right way to go, I'd, I'd pull him back. And as his peer role model, as his little mini mum, yeah. he'd listen to me. And we did everything together. And we were like that throughout our lives. So going back to the job, I was I had very much in my head where I wanted to go. And it did involve children. And it also involved opportunities. So I applied for a job... Um, with a company called Greenham Trading. I met an amazing lady called Lillian Cutting, who was the MD. And in Lillian, I found the confidence to what we would call now imposter syndrome. I didn't feel like a fake. I just looked oh. at this woman and we. she told me what she wanted and would I help her do what she needed to do. So you had a really strong female role model then? She was just amazing, but I'd also had really strong female role models from the community when I was growing up. Mm. Um, 
and it was really it was the females that were at the back of you pushing you all the time because they knew I was the eldest female so for me it was either get out there and have the opportunities that we wish we'd had and mm. um, you know really go and rock it for the girls type thing or you got married had your kids and then you become the next generation that lives on the estate and not that there's anything wrong with that but it wasn't really what I wanted to do because yeah. I'd been raising kids from a very young age anyway but I just wanted to be able to with my love of music and being able to be creative was really where I was aiming for so Lillian had got a bad debt. She was paid with bad debt in a load of TVs and videos. <laughs> yeah. And she said to me, can you tell me, can you help me where we can get rid of all of these? So we went. So she had like hundreds of TVs and videos. Loads. Was this in the 90s? This was in the eight, late in 80s. Late 80s, yeah. Um, so she got in touch with the manufacturers who were Samsung and said to them, we've got all these TVs. We need to, number one, try and find out if we sell them what kind of support that we can get from you would you honor the the warranty with them yeah so we did that um i then went on to lancashire county council and asked them um i thought with tvs and videos we have these in schools why don't we try and sell them into the schools what's the right way with the purchasing consortium of us to be able to do a tender can we go and tender these so we did and we won the uh, contract for lancashire county council then we started to supply OHPs, and then we started to supply whiteboards as they came out, and the whole thing grew. We then moved on into the area that I loved, which was we started to work with Sony Broadcast and Panasonic Broadcast, and we started to work within the broadcast television industry. Mm. And the engineers of Sony, God bless them, picked up on the fact that I was a nerd, and they taught me how to wire and yeah. configure all these different um, systems. So I then started to learn how to develop broadcast television systems so then and I was the only not many females within this industry no I can't imagine no so I went out and I pitched in for jobs and I did with um, Touchline TV I did Bolton Wanderers so when they got promoted um, in the early noughties I think it was they went to the Premier League they had got to have a six camera shoot system so I designed the studio that is still there. We worked with MUTV, um, we worked with Granada, um, Granada did all the support. But one of the things that I really loved about the job that I was doing was we were working with Salford University and we used to have a lot of the kids that had come through that had started to do media studies. Yeah. Because media studies had just become the big thing um, from the 80s and the 90s. Mm. And they were all doing non-linear editing, um, which was the first time that we'd ever done anything wasn't tape-based. So right, non-linear, right. they were doing it as on like the computer. Now, on the yeah. computer. Yeah. The digital system had just arrived, so we were learning about DVD, and we were, you know, all the algorithms and component and composite and everything that we needed to to make systems work. We put together, but our young people were then walking around the streets with the cameras, wow. and they were is all going out to reports and the new programs that were coming out, and this voice was being heard from our our young people at the time, who then went on to become very established figures like Carolina Hearn. Yeah. They were all you know starting off um, over at, um, a guy called Stam, I forget his surname, but he was at Salford University Media Studies, so. To me, the opportunities were there. We could see this for our children. I yeah. had it. 
it was just where did you go and find it but we were all being led because everybody wanted others to, to join in this revolution obviously it was all new um, it was fun it was exciting and it allowed children to, to get their voices heard yeah. also as, as a punk we had different cultures um, and different types of music and it being able to express yourself in a way that we never really thought that we'd got access to so it was that was that corporate world that I was heavily involved in because I worked in sales but for me I had to work with my clients to find my clients mm. so I had to work out a media in how I could find the right people to design the systems that worked for them mm. not what worked for us but met what the needs of what they were trying to do yeah and to be able to deliver the outcomes in a budget that fit in with what they got and I found with the business side of it that the corporate entity um, I was then going to rediscover 30 years on down the line when I started working for an independent fostering agency yeah the same lingo that was being used in the 90s and the noughties was now in this room yeah. well but the subject wasn't a TV editing system the subject was children yeah like like generating leads and yeah. inquiries and conversions and that that's kind of thing. it all of a sudden we'd entered into this this realm um and the engagement officers were being told well you've all got a different area a geographical area and basically if you divide your area into week one two three and four and revisit them on a four-week basis which is what we did when we was in sales. So yeah. if we had somebody in Chester, one week would have Chester was our week, the next week would be Wales, the next week would be Manchester, and the next week would be Salford. And you would then go and revisit each person four weeks when you were next in that area. Yeah. That was how you grew your patch. And it was a proven way of being a, you know, successful in sales back in those days. To actually bring that into children's care and into recruitment of foster carers to me was um it was shocking mm. but what I also then heard was when I worked with Lillian at Greenham's and she said to me you could either work in audiovisual or help me flog these tallies or you could work on the Greenham trading side which was supplying um, road materials and as a one-stop shop so basically anything that anybody needed when they set up on site to do the roads or to do a building site, you could get everything from a one-stop shop from the Green and Catalogue. What I then walked into 30 years later in a meeting of another corporate was exactly the same principle, which was that they were the one-stop shop for children. So basically, if you needed children's residential care, you could go to them. If you wanted a foster carer, you could go to them. They were the one-stop shop. They were an independent fostering agency. They had masses of money because they'd got investors. They'd got shareholders and directors who all had lots of skills in very different ways, but we never really knew who they were. 
because whenever they came into being, we were all shunted away because, you know, make room for their dog in the kitchen if the big bosses come, that kind of thing. But that mentality stuck with me and really made me want to do what I did, which is at 55, I realised that I'd got a pension that I didn't even know was there from my greening days. Yeah. Um, I was shut down because it, this letter came in my maiden name and it said that you got this, this pension and I thought, we can do this differently. I know we can do it differently. So I cashed in my pension and mm. I set up for recruitment, wow. limited. Um, and then I had to kind of, then all the self-doubts came in because I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how to market. Um, I knew how to market. I knew from all my broadcasting skills and everything. But this time it was about me getting my message out and selling me. Whereas beforehand it had been the products. You design a system that other people could use and then they could be themselves. And in the meantime, I'd also taken time out to... I went back to college when I was 45. Did you? I did, yeah. <laughs> I've lived in Southern Ireland. I've met my... I've been over to Canada, I met my auntie. Yeah. And my auntie worked for the YMCA over in Ontario. Yeah. And she's trained in childcare when she was 45. And she carried on working there till she was in her... Well, she's still there in her 80s. Gosh, It's amazing. This amazing lady, again, with the flame red hair, uh, walked into my life. And I'd already started having doubts and wobbles in my 40s and thinking there's something missing. Mm. And it was children because my daughter had grown up. Mm. Um, and I just felt all these things that I'd done in my youth of working with these young people and designing systems, just feel like I've kind of closed in on myself a little bit here. And I haven't got an outlet. It's not wanting to help people, but to help be creative. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I met with, with my auntie and then I went and enrolled. Um, I did my childcare qualifications. I did my FeeTech level five. I was older than my teacher. <laughs> I got a distinction, which I was really amazed about because, you know, me and exams don't go well. Yeah. Um, but I love my subjects. And then I did child psychology, did that level five. Then I did my childcare and adolescent counselling and, and I did and I loved that. And then I came back to the UK, got a job working as a nursery manager. When I made the decision about Verve, to me it was about recruiting foster carers that would meet the needs of children. Because while the time that I was working for, I mean, going back from my job in the 80s and then in 2018, no, sorry, 2016, I applied for a job as a foster care recruitment officer. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading it because months before I'd actually applied to become a foster carer. Right. And they didn't know the difference between all the organisations. So you, you were looking at it from the end user's point of view first. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, I've got this itch. There's something missing in my life, and it's children. Mm. I've always had them around me. Yeah. Um, and I thought, right, why don't I foster? Mm. So I, I applied, I rang up this company and had this amazing chat with this lady and she was... I didn't realise it was an independent fostering agency because I didn't know the difference. No, no. 
And she said, oh, you've got all these transferable skills. And she gave me all of this. And I was feeling really high about myself. And then she said, can I come and visit you at home? So I said, yeah, yeah. please do. So we had this home visit. And she came in, looked around the house, told me all about herself. Not once did she mention children. No. It, it just became so, like... Why are we here? We're having a conversation. We're two women having a conversation with each other. Yes. You've not told me about the types of children that you need support in. You don't, you're not telling me what kind of skills that I need to have to be able to help these children. You're not telling me what kind of support networks you've got. Um, you're not telling me what the different types of foster care is. You know, it's basically get approved and we'll tell you. So is it, is, is it more of a case of kind of... They don't, they don't want to go into too much detail in case they scare you off, do you think? Do you think they want to get you hooked into the Possibly. process before yeah. getting down to the sort of details and the and the pitfalls? Because obviously there's pros and cons to fostering, isn't there? It's not an easy ride. Possibly, but I think when you look at foster care, you're, ask, you're asking somebody to embrace the whole life and the family. Yeah. Everybody's involved. So if there are pitfalls, you need to know right from the off. Yeah. Um, I wasn't asked whether I was working. It oh, was just a gosh. given that I would be there. So when I said to them, how could I work and foster at the same time? I will work around it. But yeah. that to me wasn't the answer that I wanted. I wanted to know, can you work and foster? Because again, the old why machine was very heavy in me is why do I do that why do we do this you know what do you want what can I do to become the best foster carer for these children yeah. you know um, having been through all this experience and all these skills that I'd acquired throughout my life when we're dealing with children that are vulnerable and who've been through trauma it's just a very different concept than ex, you know, expecting that this this child is going to stand there and embrace you because yeah. they're not you know they've, they've been through an awful lot and we yeah. need to be mindful anyway consequently she just threw the application form on the table and said fill that in and um we'll come back to you so that application form stayed on my table for at least three months and nobody rang me and asked me, have you filled the application form? Wow. Do you need any help or anything like that? And I, and it really annoyed me because every time I walked in, I saw this application form, I'm thinking, why is nobody following this up? Yeah. You would think that if you really wanted somebody, you'd say, you know, is everything all right? And they'd already invested the time to come and see you and visit you, haven't they? Yeah, but mm. they just left it. And I thought, as a sales thing, to me, you know, if you've got somebody who's interested in anything, you would then follow it up to, A, make sure that everything was okay. Yeah. Had they changed their mind, if it was, yeah. you know, that's fine. You know, because we fully expect that people will change their mind. Only 3% of all applicants for foster carers actually become approved. Wow, so it's, yeah. So it's a really high drop-off. Yeah. And... I think if we nurtured it a little bit more within the process, maybe we could increase that number a little bit. Yeah, and address some concerns as they arise as well and answer to, like, do some myth-busting and that kind yeah. of thing as well. I said, you know, are there any of the foster carers around here that maybe I could have a chat with or do we get any events that I could go to? And 
I was like, yeah, 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 I'll get back to you, but nobody did. Mm. So I just thought, this this isn't the right way. That if somebody has opened up their heart and said, I really want to help with these children and I really want to make a difference for them, mm. help me do it. Yeah. Because you're asking them to step into the unknown. Yeah. And you want that support. But it's, you don't want support of people telling you what to think and do because as women, we know that. Inherently, we know that if if we've got to advocate on behalf of a child to get their voices heard, we know we what we have to do because we've spent our lives doing it. We mm. need to know: is this the right way? You know, guide us yeah. on this way. You know, in the interest of children. And obviously, there's a there's a massive uh, need for for foster carers, and there always has been, really, hasn't there? Yeah. But now more than ever, really. So the fact that um, all these children are out there waiting in the care system for for foster families or or, or to um, you know come from homes that um, you would think that they would kind of be almost chasing you. <laughs> you would expect, yeah, and I would expect that given the the fact that these are our children and particularly in light of the fact now that the majority of children, particularly like in the northwest and the northeast, who are going into care due to poverty, yeah. due to neglect, due to the fact that there aren't any support systems available anymore for families when they are struggling. Mm. The shore starts are gone. You know, we haven't got the facilities that were available to us when we became mums and mm. You know, so you've got a lot of young people that are failing at parenthood, and it's not their fault. No, it's not just life. Support. Yeah, yeah. And they need that backup and support. There's more need for short-term foster carers. There's more need to keep siblings together than ever yeah. before because if they go into an emergency care situation mm. and they have to be moved, like with the pandemic. If you've got a family that's been affected by COVID, children have lost a parent, there are no family that they know of that they can go and stay with while social services are trying to get the support networks for the children together. Mm. If they go then to an emergency foster carer and there isn't one that will take siblings, they get split up. When they're split up, the chances of getting them back together is marginal. And it's so traumatic, that, isn't it, to be separated from from your siblings? Can you imagine the horror of that Mm. if you've had, you know, you've lost a loved one or you've seen your mum struggle Mm. or your parents, you know, they work but they still can't afford to feed the children. Mm. And this is what the life today is all about. It's completely different from way back in the 70s and 80s where we had... A lot of misogynist trends, you know, that the father of the family was the voice of the family and the children were seen and not heard. It's different today. Mm. Thank God, you know, the children are able to express themselves. You know, so when we're looking at people who want to become foster carers, we're looking at the skills that they can bring, the experiences of life that they've got that inherently will help support a match to that child because it is all about the matching. If you've got a foster carer like yourself, you've got experience of you know your journalistic background, um, 
primary school teacher, you've got two children of your own, mm. you kind of know your way around through life, you've been around a bit, you you know what pathways <laughs> yeah. you need to go to get to A to B to yeah. get what your children and, need. And how to get support and help from yeah. the community and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But also you know what pathway you want them to go down because you can also, you've got experience of knowing that if they go down that one, yeah. chances are that it's going to go a bit wrong for them. There are certain elements that you don't want them being exposed to. Yeah. And we've got the dangers now. You know, We've got sex traffickers, we've got county lines, we've got all these mm. things that weren't around back in the day that our children have got so much exposure to. So for me, when I'm recruiting, I have to think right back to the very beginning of one, how do I get the people that I need? Um, there is a big myth now that all our advertising is done online, it's social media. And with lockdown, that was all we had because we weren't able to go out and do our recruitment events anymore, yeah. so we couldn't do face-to-face. Which meant that you were, try- you were tied into social media advertising. Yeah. No. I want somebody to go on the website and say, what is parent and child foster care? What is an accompanied asylum seeking foster care? It's not on a need to know basis because people need to know that there are these different types of foster care that are urgently needed. But how could we possibly fill that gap if people don't know that it exists? Yeah, like the step down foster care, and I didn't know about is it called step down uh, for the older children? Yeah, Um, because I didn't know anything about that. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? That is when. A lot of children, particularly um, older children, if they can't place them with with foster carers, they end up going into residential children's homes. And a lot of the time, they stay there. But to make the transition from when they're 16, of where do they go? Um, Because now, unfortunately, the support networks aren't there for them that they used to have. There's no social workers. They need... But a lot of the children have become institutionalised. They only know about residential care. For them, living with a normal family is maybe the trigger to the reason why they were placed in care in the first place. So, you know, mm. step-down care is as it's, it's, it's individual steps to try and help a young person reintegrate themselves into a family home. Right. For them then to be able to move on into independent living. Yeah. Because how can they come from living in a residential children's home into the wide world, know about housing? Mm. You know, how do they know about council tax? How do they know how to do a bank account? Everything's been done for them. Yeah, and things like cooking and cleaning and um, running a house yeah. on your own is a big thing for yeah, an 18 year old. No. You know, so how have they got those life skills that we acquire as children when we're living at home with our family? When mum says to you, oh, if you press that button and turn the cooker on, you know, get a pan, yeah. we can make beans on toast for our lunch. And, and do that repeatedly, because it's, as I know with my kids, it's one thing telling them how to do something once. But then if they don't practice that and repeat that yes. on a regular basis, it just goes out of their head, doesn't yeah. it? So for step-down... Um, Foster carers, what kind of families are, like, ideal for for those um, older children to go to? Predominantly, you'd want 
any child that's been in residential care, they need more one-to-one. Yeah. Um, because for them, it's understanding the basics of family mm-hmm. life, of, of home life, you know, of routine, yeah. of having somebody to sit and watch Carrie with. You know, that on a Saturday morning, you go and do the shopping. You integrate a routine of a normal life. This is what we do to be able to survive when you're on your own. Yeah. A lot of the times, if there's too much going on, then it's it's too sensory overload. Yeah. Because a lot of the children have gone into into residential care because they've suffered severe trauma. Mm. Um, you know, it could be sexual abuse, it could be physical abuse. It their the support they need is very specialist one to one with people who understand. So it's like an extremely nurturing kind of person. It has to be. And probably yeah. without all the children, is that right? Yeah. There are was we have to integrate children into a family. Whereas I mean, one lady that um, became approved with us, she is a child psychologist, yeah. and she's worked in children's residential care doing step down um, for many many years. And when I first met her, and she then became approved with one of the charities in Lancashire. She is now a mentor for them and their foster carers to provide more step down. Mm. And she has her own family, but her family are grown up. So when she brings the young people into her home, it's just her. Yeah. And it's just her and them. And then yeah. they do it over a period of time. Yeah. They, the child then gets used to having this relationship, whereas they've known her before in a professional capacity. They see you in a personal capacity. And the reasons why she's done it is she realises the difference that she can make on a 24-7 basis. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as I said in the, in the blog, one of the biggest things that they, the residential care workers do, and they all say exactly the same thing, when they leave the shift and they're leaving those children behind, it breaks the heart. Mm-hmm. Because whoever comes on next, if they don't have the same kind of level and care that... Everything that they've done that day is gone. It's undone then, isn't it? So you're just constantly reinventing the wheel. Mm. And unless we get that right, right down at the very the root level within residential care sector, with the staffing that's there, and we make sure that the platform is that, you know, the consistency of care, which isn't there, you mm. know, and this is the reason why we need step-down care, because if it was there, we wouldn't need step-down care. It mm. would be part of the transition you know, from when a child reaches 14, we start to think, you know, if they've been in a residential care home and the, whoever the provider was, you would then think that they would think to themselves, we need to now start making steps to help these children adjust into their future. Yeah. Um, when you think that residential care providers get paid something like £8,000, £10,000 a week for those children being in their care and they've been with them for seven or eight years wow that's a lot of money isn't it it's a huge amount of money yeah why haven't they put something to one side for those kids as they get older yeah you know I mean it stands to reason that when our children when they get 16 or 17 or they start to become independent we have we've Mm. made provisions for them we show them what they need to do but these kids don't have that Mm. but you look at these these large corporates that are making huge profits mm. and 
you look at independent foster agencies and what they charge the local authorities mm-hmm. per week for each child. £2,000 a week. Yeah. That's not being passed on to the foster carer. No. I was just I was just going to come on come on to that actually about the local authorities. So look, so basically, local authorities have a certain amount of children in under their care that they need to find either residential care or foster care for or adoption, I suppose. So when when they're faced with budget cuts, um, which they all are um, from government budget cuts, local authorities are really strapped at the moment. So. What what are the sort of differences between working with a an independent foster agency and um, a charity or a, a, a CIC like yourself, a not for profit? What are the, what are the differences? All children come into the care of the local authority. Yeah. So if a court decides that the children need to be moved either for their own protection or families are struggling or for whatever reason that the children then go to their local authority. The local authority then looks at their own pool of foster carers to see if they've got the best match that meet the needs of those children. Mm. If they haven't got a foster carer for them then they would look at not-for-profit charities and they would say we've got these this child this is the type of foster care that we need, we need to find the best match for them. If they haven't got one, they go to the independent fostering agencies yeah. and it becomes more expensive. Yeah. So when if they say, yeah, we've got a, a foster care that meets the needs of these children, the cost will be. Now, a lot of the time, the local authorities are over a barrel because they've got nowhere else for these children to go. Yeah, it's, it's the end of that, the road, isn't it, really? Yeah. no other choice. See, that all the children go into residential care. You look at the cost of children going into residential care as opposed to the cost of children going into foster care. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's a huge difference. And, and when you've got cash-strapped council budgets, you know, every penny counts. Mm-hmm. So... What will happen is that they will look to provide emergency foster care mm. initially, which would give them time to be able to look to see if there's any family members um, that will be able to take the children, which means that they can stay within their own community. Mm. There's, there's less trauma because they stay within their own schools and life would become very much almost the same while they help and support the families um, or whatever support is needed for the reason why, you know, the children are where they are. If they're able to do that and find the emergency foster carers, then it gives them the chance to go and look and find family members and then they go on to a special guardianship and kids can go and stay with nanny and granddad or mm. um, aunties and uncles. And In a perfect world, that is what we need mm. because we need children to stay within their own community. If that doesn't happen, and then the only way that they're able to place these children is within an independent foster agency, who then moves the children out of area. Yeah. So what we're finding is that children from from Wigan could end up in Scotland. Wow. They could be, you know, it happens. And that's so traumatic again, like we were saying about siblings being separated, being out completely out of your area, without friends, without not knowing, knowing anybody. anybody or anywhere to go. Yeah. Um, 
it started again, isn't Can it? Can you imagine that if you're on your own as a child and when you sp- when you speak to the children that are in care and you listen to because I do a lot of writing, I did a writing mm. of campaigns um, for Caritas Care, who is a not-for-profit fostering charity over in Lancashire. And we yeah. did the Faces of Fostering campaign last year. And part of that campaign was to write an article about different people who were involved within foster care. So one month it would be one of the social workers, the next month it would be one of the children's support workers, the next month it would be a foster carer, mm. it would be a male foster carer, it would be somebody who transferred from another, uh, from an independent through to a not-for-profit charity. Um, and each one of them would give their reason, um, you know, their different version of what foster care meant to them, either in a personal or professional capacity. And it opens up your eyes when you listen to some of the stories from the young people of how they've, the journey that they've had with the types of foster carers that they've had along the way. And it's not to say that all the foster carers from independent foster agencies are bad because they're not. No, no. They're absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And when I work for the independent foster agency, um, until we were taken over by a very large organisation, the children that we looked after had the best, you know, the, yeah. the support networks and everything was there. What I found that when we were t- the takeover was corporate came into being and attending the meetings and hearing the words one-stop shop yeah. took me back right back to where I was when we were selling the wellies and you know yeah the, the children are becoming like a bit of a commodity well this is what I felt case, it was and I, I was disgusted and yeah. I thought yeah you know we can replace wellies you know we can replace combs on the road we can yeah. replace you know televisions and videos but we're talking kids here yeah it shouldn't be in the same equation no no so when I decided that we was going to set up Verve, um, the main headache that I had was listening to all the nonsense about websites and how we had to have all this presence and pay-per-click and that, that kind of swayed me for a, a long time. I'd reached an age when I was a bit unsure about myself as well because we've got this this new digital world yeah. coming to being yeah. um, and I didn't understand the buzzwords because you know, I didn't need to, I'd come away from it. Yeah. But then I was faced with a website that didn't work, so I had to learn and I designed my own website. Yeah, you've done brilliantly as well. And I just thought, you know, you're not daft, you can do it, just apply your mind. And and from a marketing perspective, one of the things that I'm always telling clients is um, make sure that you're blogging because this is going to get your traffic up. You need to try and blog as much as you can and... Uh, use all those juicy keywords that are going to drive people to to your website, and you're excellent at blogging. You're like a brilliant writer, but you put a lot of time into that as well, don't you? It doesn't. It's it. It's not an easy thing to do, but you are consistently adding. Well, to one that of the things that I'd, I got, I had a, constantly had a, a row with with the social workers, with the agency that I'd worked for when I did my foster care recruitment initially, um, was what are the different types of foster carers yeah. that that we need? Because while I'm taking these calls and I'm speaking to you and you're saying to me that I'm a former midwife, I'm a former paediatric nurse, I would now think mother and baby. Yeah. Whereas at the time, mother and baby was just a little segment on the website. And when I asked somebody what it was, they said it was on a need-to-know basis. 
And I said, but do you not feel that we need to know? Because if people know that we need mother and baby foster carers, maybe they'll come more because of that. We have to tell them what the needs are. Yeah, the transparency is really important, isn't it? And it's hugely also, important. Also, another thing that you're good at is is not glossing over the um, the pit, like we said, the pitfalls and the negatives because it, it is a tough job when you are going to come across negativity and um, behaviour issues and whatnot. And I think sometimes some fostering agencies make it all seem very nice and glossy and lovely like you're gonna get these perfect children gonna have a perfect days out and everything's gonna be lovely and you're gonna have a perfect life (laughs) but you don't you're not a believer in selling that to people are you no no because i'm a realist and i've worked with children all my life you know i've brought children up from being you know as an older sister a huge family we've always had kids kids are kids they're not going to come knocking on your door, you know, with rosy cheeks and then walk in and sit there and, you know, we can't expect our children to do that, given what they've been through. Exactly. We yeah. have to be realistic and, and say, yeah, you know, I know people that work in residential care and they say, oh God, we've had a kickoff last night and every day was a kickoff. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, why do you keep referring to it as a kickoff? You know, how did you let it escalate into mm-hmm. a kickoff every single day? You know, your children are running away on a daily basis. Mm. Do you not think that you need to kind of step back and think, is there something that I should be doing better? Do we need more training? There's triggers there, isn't there, obviously? That's that's it, yeah. Yeah. And we're kind of using these triggers that the children have got and using buzzwords to kind of allow for our own failings. Yeah. You know, we're looking at... We know what the triggers are for children for the trauma and we know the reaction it's going to cause and if we know and we understand that children's behaviours are because of something and we're able to work with them to help them get past those or to move them to one side and replace them with with happier memories we we've all got the life skills where we've got an empathy mm. you're hoping that we have that if yeah. we know that there is something that has happened in your past, we wouldn't keep on revisiting it and no. reopening that wound because no. that would be cruel. Yeah. We wouldn't ignore it neither. We would know that you'd need a bit of help and we would then give you the help that you need and then replace it with happier things to create yeah. better memories so that eventually they become the stronger, more powerful. And you're not yeah. dominated by your past all the time because that's what, as foster carers, that's what our job is. You know, we've got an inherent empathy that says we understand. I was just going to mention, actually, as you were talking before about this, kind of um, mindfulness, really. Are the children becoming more equipped in, like, being more mindful about what's happened to them and um, how they're feeling and sort of dealing with stress and triggers when when it comes on because because i think since the pandemic especially i've become yeah. a lot more aware of mindfulness services and there are lots locally in the wigan area um and i think it would be it must be really useful if children can start to manage their own emotions yeah and i think there's a lot from back in our day where children were seen and not heard you know we were felt a bit stressed and a bit frightened or whatever it was don't be a wimp, get on with it. Yeah. 
Whereas now, we would never dream of saying that. I would never say that to my grandchild. No. You know, you just wouldn't because if they're upset or they're hurting or they're confused, you need to help them. Mm. Um, And because we know them, because we've taken time out to understand them, once you've built that relationship and you've built that trust and children can share their fears and their worries with you, if you relay that trust back and then you act and do something for them and say, is that better? Mm. If it is, you know, then we don't keep going on about it. We say, right, come on, we're going to go and do this. But they understood that feeling that they've had, that you've helped them make them feel better. And you've validated the, the feeling. Um, That's right, because you're not rubbishing them, them down. You yeah. know, saying, oh, don't silly, because it's real. Yeah. Uh, for a child who's actually experienced a lot of trauma, it's even more real because it's not just the imagination, it's real. I, I, I always think about it in uh, work, having worked in schools as well, when um, you hear teachers, and, and it's just a really basic example, but when a kid's fallen over or hurt themselves and they're crying, and the teacher says to them, stop crying now, you know, stop crying. And sometimes they get quite annoyed, the teachers at the children, because they're crying and they're making a fuss, as they call yeah. it. But I always um, tried to talk them down by saying, oh, you're being really brave, well done, sit down, put, we'll sort you out, don't worry, we'll yeah. sort you out. And you and that was quicker. To, yeah. They would stop crying much quicker if you accepted how they felt and said that you understood how they felt and that we were going to patch them up and everything would be okay. Yeah. That's much um, more sort of comforting to them than somebody staying... Stop crying, stop crying, as if, right, you know, your feelings don't matter. I exactly. don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about your feelings. Yeah. It's um, I not think nice also way, when you've it? had a child who's been used to being ignored. Yeah. And all of a sudden they've got somebody who doesn't want to ignore them, who yeah. wants to hear what they've got to say, is interested in them as a person on their own. That, to them, is a big deal. It's a big issue because mm. there's trust yeah, and a lot of this time, I mean, they, they do build up layers to protect themselves, yeah. and to remove those layers one by one is a very lengthy process. And foster carers are amazing at doing this because yeah. over time, on a one-to-one or as part of families, those layers, those barriers, start to get broken down that the children mm. have created. And before we know it, we've got a child that is fully transitioned. The, the, They've turned a corner, you can see it. They're happier, they're more settled, they're more confident, they smile more, they're not as scared. You know, these are the things that we have to be aware of. And one of the campaigns, the reason why I became a CIC was that I want to be able to give back through the campaign. So one of the um, things that we've noticed during the pandemic is that the charity shops are shut. So... One of the mums in Salford, um, she'd had her eighth baby and he wow. was born early. Oh. Jeremiah, he was pretty poorly. And Yvonne Sims, who's one of our ambassadors in Salford, she runs Salford Food Parcels and she said to me, You know, we can't get any clothes for this this baby. And, well, and the shops are shut. Yeah. yeah. Um, she said, Can you not write an appeal and ask people if they can do some knitted baby clothes? So I said, yeah, write down what we want. So anyway, I wrote this knitted baby clothes appeal. And it was, because the charity shops were shut and they weren't able to get... And if you look at the cost of going out and buying a prem baby coat, yeah. you know, £12. Yeah. 
Yeah. How many families these days can afford when to they've got eight kids? When you've got eight kids, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so thankfully, the women of Salford and Swinton and Manchester all just came to and started to knit these baby clothes, oh, and we've had something gosh. like three and a half thousand knitted garments wow, that have been so given. Um, <laughs> That's a wardrobe and a half, isn't it? It was just amazing because a lot of these women, like one was my mum. Um, yeah. My mum had had a stroke. And I said to her, you know, rather than sitting there listening to Piers Morgan and getting yourself all wound up every day, why don't you knit? So she said, well, I've not knit for ages and there's nobody to knit for. So I told her about um, Jeremiah. And I said, you know, there's no rush because he's going to be in hospital for a while. But if you can knit a little cardigan, like you've knit for all of us yeah. when we were kids and all your grandchildren, but will you... I've got arthritis in my hand. She came up with every excuse in the book not to do it. And I said, oh, come on, Mum. I said, he's got nothing to wear. I said, come on, make him a cardigan. He needs you. Yeah. So, so she did. So she knit yeah. this little blue cardigan. She said, I've got a ball of blue wool. Oh. She said, oh, so she did. And there's a photograph of Jeremiah um, with this cardigan that my mum made. So she literally oh. set the bar rolling. Yeah. And her little bungalow in, in Wardle in Swinton, Everybody started to drop off oh, all the knitting. So yeah. there's a big community of knitters in Wardley that all came yeah. together and went to mums. And then we started to get knitting patterns that had been donated to us because a lot of them were saying, well, the knitting patterns that we got in the charity shops and the clothes because yeah. we were in lockdown. Yeah. So I said, right, does anybody have any knitting patterns? So this lady from Swinton got in touch and said, my mum used to have a knitting shop on um, near Swinton Precinct. Like my mum's retired now, but we've still got all the patterns. Would you like them? Wow. So we started to get all these patterns from the 1950s. Oh, brilliant. Retro. Oh, they're absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, they will be. So I've got them, and then I took them to these ladies, and I said, do you fancy having a go with these? And we ended up having the post to people in Cornwall. Oh, you know, and, brilliant. and all of a sudden, all these beautiful, gorgeous, hand-knitted little clothes started to arrive. Yeah. And then I thought, well, you know what? You, your mums might not have much. We've got no money, but the babies can look stunning. Yeah, that's it. It's just it's just a lovely feeling when people give you something like that. And because um, the, the people give me things when I've had my children, and you can see that so much time's gone into it. It's yeah. handmade, and so much time's gone into it. And it, it's, it makes you appreciate it. Well, it? what they were saying when they like, they did email me and say, right, well, I've sent a parcel off to you. Um, let me know when you get it. So this parcel would arrive, open it up, and the most gorgeous, beautiful clothes. And then oh. I'd ring them and say, the, the parcel's arrived, but it's so beautiful what you've done. And yeah. the joy they had of knitting and creating them, because they didn't have families to knit so far anymore. No. They felt that, particularly during the pandemic, that they were useless. They wanted to help. Yeah. They were bringing up charities and saying to them, you know, if we knit clothes and they were saying, no, we don't want them. Yeah, because um, there was a lot of concern about the passing on the virus through clothes, wasn't Exactly, there? yeah. yeah. Um, so their well-being was really being affected because yeah. there's a generation that have spent their lives nurturing others, all of a sudden they didn't feel that they'd um, get any value. No, they were asked to just sit sit back and stay at home, weren't they? That's basically? it, yeah. Yeah. So then we started to do the campaign for the bereavement blankets because yeah. we found out that within the hospitals that a lot of the COVID patients 
they were using these breathing blankets to cover them at the top and there was a big need for them. Yeah. And my daughter Maxine, she's a student nurse at Salford Braille, and she said to me, Mum, these blankets are beautiful. If you get any ladies that could do them, because there's a real need. And I hadn't heard about the bereavement blankets at that point. Yeah. So I went in, I met the SWAN team, and I said to them, can you give me an idea of the concepts that I've, I could put, let people know what they are? You know, is there a particular colour that you mm. want them to be? And that they have to be as individual as the person. Right. So basically, if you were in hospital and you got COVID and they would give you a blanket that would cover the top of your, your shoulders. Yeah. Um, and you would pick the one that you liked. Yeah. And when that person passed away, sadly, yeah. that blanket would then go to the family. Oh, right. Or it would be with them um, through their cremation or their burial. Yeah, because they didn't get the chance to go and visit, did they? That's it. So yeah. when families weren't able to go in and visit, at least then you had something that that your that your mom or your your brother or your father had worn, and yeah. it had been part of them. Right. So at the end, till the yeah. End. And then oh, we um, we had the knitted hearts, um, which again I had the same thing done when my mum passed away. We got a knitted heart, and when they were doing the last rites to mum, my sister was really really lost it and um i remember the the padre just gave her this heart and then popped this other one on mum's chest yeah. and my sister said what's this and i said it's a knitted heart i said it's been knitted by the ladies in salford and swinton i said you keep one and the other one will stay with mum oh, so you fine. keep that in your pocket yeah and then we do the little knitted teddies yeah for the children so every child gets a teddy do they when that's right they yeah. go through the process of fostering yeah well one of the things that came about because we found out about the knitted teddies that we give to children who've been affected <clears throat> by bereavement yeah. of covid so every child gets a little Mrs. Teddy bear and, yeah. you know, it, it kind of to replace the cuddles oh, of yeah. another person that's gone. And then I got talking to the Foster Care Cooperative, which is one of the not-for-profit charities that I recruit for, and I said to them, when, you, when your children go into foster care, when they're in emergency care, basically, They've got the clothes that they're wearing. Yeah, They've been nothing. taken quickly. They've got nothing. So they put together a little box, a little pack. And this now led on to our campaign that you and I did just recently about Ukrainian, because yes. we've done the same thing. With the phones and the drawings and the, right. um, the Easter eggs that the children got together locally. Yeah. So this little box, and they said we put a toothbrush in there, we put toothpaste, underwear, stuff that the children, it's a little welcome pack. Yeah. And I said, we started to get knitted toys that the ladies had then moved on to. So we've got all yeah. these beautiful knitted toys. And we did um, Armed Forces Day events at Pendleton Church. And I took the knitted toys with me and I put them on this table. And on the day, these, these children were just drawn to these toys. And some of them were quite out there, you know, because there was yeah. one lady from Sweden and she brought these different types of dolls, oh. like Nordic ones. Yeah, cool. And they were all a bit, ooh, they had very long legs and arms. Yeah. And the kids were like mesmerised by them. And the parents were kind of stood there looking at us with all these toys on this stall. And then they said, how much are these toys? And I said, there's no cost. They've been donated free by the ladies who knit for us. Yeah. I said, if your children want them. But what was interesting oh, was that the parents 
were kind of, don't touch that. Yeah, Because yeah. they haven't got any money. No. And, you know, if we'd have turned around and said, oh, the £10 each, can you imagine what it would like to say? Yeah. yeah. So we didn't put anything on it. What we wanted was the reaction of the children. That's what I was looking yeah. for. Oh. And they would pick them up and uh, give them a hug and a cuddle. And then I thought, if our kids are going into emergency care or going into foster care and they need a hug, then why don't we just create a little knitted toy that can go in the pocket, that they can carry around with them, that is theirs. Yeah. And if they're a bit frightened or whatever, they've got a little friend until they start to... So that's what we did. So the knitted yeah. toys now go into the welcome packs for all the children that go into foster care. Oh, that's so, you know, that's what was intended. And it's really important to involve the community as well in, 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 um, in what you do, I think, because... It, it helps people feel like like they're helping, but also I think it raises awareness as well, doesn't it? Of of um, who needs help, and and like you said, sometimes it all it takes is a bit of a spark of an idea from somebody who may might not think that they're suitable for fostering. Yeah. But if they just hear on the grapevine that somebody's helping the fostering agency or somebody's working with you, and then it might just spark that idea that maybe they could be. A, a foster carer as well. So you you you're very involved with like um, uh, ex armed forces and ex professional like nurses, people yeah. people work teachers and that kind mm. of thing. Yeah. Um, but people who foster can can come from any walk of life as well, can't they? Every walk of life, because every child is different. Yeah. As I said before, it comes down to the matching. If, when you make the inquiry, I, I much prefer it if somebody rings up and says, look, I know nothing. And I'll tell me about you. Yeah. What environment you've, you're from, you know, your experiences in life, you know, is there any particular type of foster care? Are you open to, you know, exploring about everything? Some people have got a very... Definitive plan, and they say, you know, I want to do emergency foster care because it fits in with my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so when I'm available, I, some people go on a lot of holidays. Some people have the grandchildren during the school holidays. So they don't want the long term kind of foster care. Yeah. yeah. So to them, it's perfect. A lot of them have got two or three spare bedrooms that are just sit there empty for a lot of the time. Yeah. And yes, it won't. And they're the people we need. Yeah. You know, because if you've got two or three bedrooms and you've got four children from a family that needs to go somewhere very quickly while mm. decisions are being made about trying to keep them within their own family, keep them together. Yeah. You know, so... But they don't see that they would have any use because they don't think that that's what we're looking for. Yeah. And yeah. again, it stands... If we match you with the right organisation, the right not-for-profit charity, or they're not you know, the right local authority... What we've got to look for is where would you get the best support? Mm. So if you need support today, is it there for you? Mm. What are the foster carers are around? What facilities of support are they able to give to you when you need it the most? Now, one of the big myths that's been put around at the moment by certain fostering agencies is that the local authorities don't have the support networks well they do have the support networks mm. they do have that um, I've heard one independent foster agency say that 
we're able to pay you more as a foster carer because we don't have to have the same support networks that the local authorities have got. Well, yes, you do. Mm. But at the minute, over the last 12 years, we've had austerity and the local authorities have been cut. Um, and they haven't got the support networks that are there. But it doesn't mean that you don't get support. No, they, they've just re- got a reduced kind of um, support service. Yeah. But it, and it's also... Because um, I've worked, worked with the community quite a bit in my local area, and I think a lot of what the, the local authorities are doing now is signposting rather than actually offering the service in the And this house. is where the not-for-profits are coming in, yeah. because you've got all of these not-for-profits and CICs like myself... Sell for food parcels, you know. If <clears throat> and if somebody can't afford to to put a meal on the table or they need an emergency food parcel, they would deliver it to them. Yeah, that meant that that family wasn't in crisis. Yeah. If mum wasn't able to go out and buy warm clothes for the children because she didn't have the money, we would drop off all the our knitted clothes over at the Shore Start Centres and the community centres so mums were able to just put them on the baby's backs. Yeah. That meant that they were they're being effective at keeping the children warm. Again with mother and baby, you know, the the main types of foster carers that are needed are emergency sorry, the mother and baby, which a lot of people don't know that no. what mother and baby Young, are. Younger mums basically who who've yeah. not got a home. That's right. Mm. A lot of the, the parent and child or mother and baby foster care, they're both one and the same. It's a 12-week placement normally. Yeah. And it's bringing a young mum um, or young parents into your home and to teach them parenting skills yeah. is to observe and to help them. A lot of them need a helping hand, particularly children that are you know, young people that have been in care yeah. and have never had a strong peer role model to show them what to do so their maternal instincts aren't the same as anybody else because a lot of the time they they put barriers in their way they've created layers to protect themselves so the actual maternal instincts of motherhood doesn't kick in because they don't understand what it is and we need to teach them they haven't seen it it's a parent and you've got to let the child in you've got to nurture those sometimes are feelings that children are just blocked Mm. because it makes them vulnerable but yeah. from a lot of the, the mums that have mother and baby, one of the joys for them when they're successful is that they never thought that they would be able to achieve it. Yeah. They yeah. felt that they were expected to fail yeah. because of the circumstance of where they've been. So they, they felt they were being labelled to, to fall before they'd even started. So yeah. they would give up and they would say, well, that child's better off away from me because I'm going to be a terrible parent. And, you know, so take the child into, into foster care or adoption or whatever, where we should give them the opportunity because of the skills that the parent and child foster carers have got, which is, and a lot of parent and child foster carers are people that have helped their own children. Yeah. Uh, they've helped, we've all had them on the estates where we've come from, that, you know, you would have a lady down the road that would always be helping somebody out yeah. when he got a bit stuck yeah um passing you know, down clothes and sending meals over and that kind of thing that's it yeah. yeah or you know if you never around with your mum you're going to stop there yeah um, or if you got in trouble <laughs> yeah. which was you know quite a lot of our young girls got in trouble mm. and then they would go and stay with her and she would then teach them how to make a bottle yeah. you know and oh, how gosh. to 
nurture and how to love the child yeah. and the the basics of you know yeah you've got to get up every four hours you know and, and all the different parenting skills that they needed and then they went on to become successful parents and, yeah because it empowers them we were talking about empowerment a bit before before the podcast weren't we but I think um, when people st- start to get that yeah. that confidence, yeah. it's so empowering. Yeah. And then from there, it's just an absolute springboard, isn't it? And there's no stopping people. Well, I think this is it. Because as you go through, particularly if you've been through a lot of trauma and you don't expect your voice to be heard, yeah. and you've been ignored... And then you know that you've got this this little being that is relying yeah. on you. You either switch goes on or off. You, yeah. If it's off, it's your protection mode to yourself because you feel that you're going to fail. But if you've got somebody at the side of you saying, "Well, this is what we do," you know, yeah. and you start to envelop those feelings that you've now started to to develop with this this little person and you understand what love really is mm. because you're able to feel it probably for the first yeah. time ever yeah and that is is yours for the first time you've had something that belongs to yeah. you and once they grasp that and they feel it that is then the trigger that moves them forward and saying i can do this yeah. and if you've got somebody at the side of you as these parent and child foster carers who are amazing people and they guide them yeah. and they support them and they help them to get onto the housing ladder. They teach them all about the different benefits and things that they can get about, you know, employability. They put them in the system. Yeah. Once they're in the system, things start to move. Mm. If they're out of the system, nothing's going to happen. No. They just become more and more vulnerable. And we've got so many young people that are just... Mm. needing that support whereas at one time we took it for granted from the estates that we lived on that there would always be somebody there Yeah. now it seems that the tide is turning that more and more people are inquiring for the right reasons yeah. and quite a lot of people say I feel really bad in saying this but you know I need the money well I, I was just going to mention actually like um at the moment, with the cost of living crisis and the pandemic, uh, 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 which has obviously affected jobs, a lot of people were on furlough for a long time, and that has a knock-on effect for years sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. So, have you found that more, you're getting more inquiries and, and more demand as well since the, since the pandemic? And, like, also, what do people get monetary-wise? Are people able to sort of... Um, give up the jobs or or like if they're retired can they become um can they become a foster care if they're retired and that kind of thing yeah mm. yeah each particular person and their, their situation is unique but what we are finding now particularly with regards since the pandemic more people are inquiring but they're kind of mindful of making huge life-changing decisions because yeah. of the world that we're in today because yeah. it seems to change day by day there's a lot of people who've inquired with the best intentions in the world 95% of them have been hit by COVID if it's not themselves it's their family they've become carers for their own parents things have been put on hold I've got more foster care potential foster carers on hold now than ever before yeah. um, but the intention has always been 
with those particular people and you know they're the ones that, that they've done this because they've they've seen what is happening in the world today they've seen what young people face they don't listen to the labels because in a professional or a personal capacity they've got the ability to see past that mm. they recognize that the spin that is being made um, particularly within our government we can see that everything is a mess and our kids are getting affected by this yeah. once more whereas in the past we would have had people that would have been there to pick them up and help them they themselves are now vulnerable because the yeah. support networks they would have had has gone it's pulled the rug from a lot of people yeah. hasn't it definitely whereas people were um it's quite pretty self-sufficient getting on with their own lives and uh, you, you literally turn a corner and week by week you, you could be you could be at home in hospital you could be at work it, it's been um, a rocky ride hasn't it for people well it has and I think like I don't know if you've had your last month's electricity um, bills, bills then yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had the email you go into any supermarket and see how many cards have been declined at the counters yeah. And then we can see parents and the transferring money over from one account mm. to another. When you look at how much the cost of living has gone up, we've still got to to pay our bills. Yeah. Um, people are looking at different ways of earning a living. Yeah, yeah, alternative forms of income. Yeah. And we have to look at it because it's self-survival. It is not yeah. saying that we're using our children as a means of making money no. because we're not. What we're looking at is that if you've got a spare bedroom, um, you want to be at home to support your children. If you've got the time and the experience to dedicate to a child, regardless of being in that family, there has to be to that child purely or to those children, each one individual in, in place of siblings. Mm. If you can do that, and you will commit yourself and your home and your family. Think about fostering. Yeah. You know, there is a, an allowance that you get paid, depend upon the skills and experience that you can bring. Yeah. It's like with any job, if you apply for a job and you say, well, well I've got no skills and experience in that, they're not gonna take you on. Mm. But if you say, you know, I'm an ex, like I said before, you know, I'm an ex midwife or an ex pediatric nurse, mm. um, you know, and I'm interested, I want to do mother and baby foster care. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that there's a lot of people sitting there who are sort of retired and their children are perhaps older or they're approaching retirement or would like to take early retirement and it doesn't look like um, they can because they've got to pay the bills, they maybe have some yeah. mortgage left to pay. Um, it, it seems to me that a lot of those people could actually... Um, it's a bit of a win-win situation because if they want to yeah. stay at home and and nurture these children, and at the end of the day, it's a job, isn't it, fostering? Yeah. It, 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 so it's right that people should be should be paid what and paid well. Well, I think when you get job. to that age, like it did with me, it was in my mid forties, and I realised that there was something missing out of my life. Yeah. And it was children, and there are a lot of foster carers that have gone on to become approved that have said the same thing. 
I've got empty nest. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll come <laughs> home when the coffee cup is on the same place that I left it that morning. Nobody's yeah. been in. See, I, that's my dream because I've got two kids under, <laughs> under, under uh, the big primary. What you primary. Wish for. I know, the primary school age. And yeah. I, I think, gosh, you know, before I had kids, I used to put stuff down and it used to stay there for weeks. <laughs> but yeah, I can definitely imagine that I'll get that when they've, when they've flown the nest. The silence is deafening. Yeah. And you feel redundant because when your children are young, you they need you. And whether yeah. it's it's nothing that is me meaning that you don't feel fulfilled because you're not doing something to support others, but you've got that family unit that you feel a part of. This is your home, it's your family and it's yeah. growing. Once it's grown and they've all gone, you feel redundant. Yeah. But you're not redundant because you've got all these skills and experiences that's that's produced this successful family. Yeah. These are the skills that children need. That's it. And and, um, also, I I suppose, even if you've never had children before as well, a lot of people will, will sit there and think, oh... I can't become a foster carer because I've never had any experience in in um, looking after children, you know, or being responsible for children. But they can still be uh, have those amazing transferable skills. Well, can't this they is learn it. parenting. One of the best foster carers I know is a lady called Emma, and she's a single She's a single foster carer. She's no birth children of her own. Yeah. Um, she has two boys on long term. She's from Preston. She's the most amazingly calm, wonderful person. And one of the biggest fears was that I've got no other children of my own. Yeah. Um, she didn't need them because inherently she, as a person, had got the skills that these boys, her boys as she calls them, um, they need from her. Yeah. See, it's absolutely beautiful that she's able to give them what they need. And it's not built on what she's achieved in the past. So she's got nothing to kind of draw back on. Yeah. Everything is fresh. She's learned on the job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's learning on the job. She's working with the social workers, but inherently she knows deep down. Yeah. Um, she's also had siblings. She'd known children that were in foster care when she was growing up in school. So she knew from her friends who were in foster care how yeah. they felt because they shared a lot of the information with her. She was open to a lot of honesty from them as well. So their fears and their worries of being a looked after child compared to her that had got a mum and dad was so different. She was able to see the parallels as a child. So she was bringing that to children because she's learnt it as a child. She wasn't an adult who picked it up from a book and learned it. These were experiences that she's gained as a child and then that empathy because she was such a caring is such a caring person has carried continued throughout her life. And and also I I've um a friend who who always said, you know, until you have a baby or a child, you don't you don't know anything about parenting and, yeah. and until you get in that situation where you are the sole person responsible for that child, yeah. That's when you become you know, a parent or a foster parent, it's, it just kicks in, doesn't it? It, it does, does, and it doesn't matter that you haven't given birth because one of the things that rang true, what she said, and I think it's one of the nicest phrases that anybody's ever said, is how privileged am I to be able to bring up somebody else's child? Yeah. 
yeah. you know for them it didn't work out yeah and we can go into the whys and wherefores of why children are taken into care mm. and bad parenting neglect abuse children don't ask for this no. a lot of the time parents don't ask for it neither no. there's a toxic combination within our community that makes certain sectors fail yeah. and you know when when parents get in trouble when 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 they start to become vulnerable and they get into the realms of social services and interventions because they don't know they they kind of more often than not they th they feel well I have no choice but to give my children up yeah yeah because if I do I've got more chance of getting them back yeah. because it gives me access to the support services that I need to get my children back so I voluntarily yeah. hand them over and there's more of that that's going on these days yeah. because parents cannot support them and give them the right support that their children need and yeah. this is where we need foster carers who understand that children have got families they yeah. have got mums and dads they've got nana and granddads and contact with their family is absolutely yeah. vital yeah and that's why you, you you mentioned that people need to be able to sort of free themselves up maybe from the from a job because they will have to attend access meetings that's it yeah i mean one of the guys that um, i wrote an article about a young guy called byron um again he was a character's care foster carer yeah. and byron was telling me about his story what had happened to him and how he got split from his sibling mm. um and when you read his story and you look at every step of the way it, it was wrong. He'd been given yeah. the wrong foster care as original as he's he ended up his brother then being taken into residential care and staying in residential care and yeah. then he lost his brother yeah. and he was split off from him and he'd gone through the system. He'd had so many foster carers that gave up on him. Yeah. Um he was expelled from primary school twice oh, and he said, I'm not proud of the fact that that, that happened but yeah. it's because he got he hadn't been diagnosed with his ADHD he was considered yeah. being naughty yeah um he then got George his foster carer with Caritas who when he was 14 who kind of made him think hang on a minute I need to start planning things yeah so George and his wife and Caritas started to, to guide him into adulthood. Into adulthood. Yeah. And what they did is that they worked with um, Byron's social worker, Emma, and they tracked his brother down. Oh, God. Um, and they now lived street, two streets side by side of each other yeah. in Blackpool. Right. So they both got independent flats. But, but they could see each other when they They see like. each other every day. Yeah. And it's yeah. wonderful because when oh, it goes brilliant. right, it goes right. Yeah. And all that took was a social worker understanding his need for mm. his family because once he's left the safety of being within the foster care network he's on his own he needs yeah. family so she yeah. took the time to find his brother and then Blackpool Council thankfully understood that and then gave him a flat feel like saying yeah, the next street mm. to his brother Barry's just done his level three in car mechanics. Oh, brilliant. You know, so, oh. you know, and that was all because somebody, his foster carers had seen that there was, academically, 
he wasn't able to achieve because there was a reason. And once yeah. he'd got on the right medication to enable him to then get the right education and he went out of mainstreaming for his one-to-one and then yeah. found a career path that he was genuinely interested in, which was cars, mm. he, he blossomed. Oh, that's brilliant. That's but it really just example. takes that, that one person to, to listen get in touch with Ralph on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, just head to the website birdrecruitment.org uh, and you'll find the links there. Thanks Val.